It's good to see your smiling faces this morning. And for that, we sing hallelujah. Amen? Hallelujah. It's a shout of proclamation. It's a shout of joy. It's a shout of victory. We will not be silenced. Amen? It's a declaration that we will let our praises be known. Amen? Father, we just thank you today. We give a shout of hallelujah for being in your presence, for being gathered together. And we're just excited about what you have for us, Lord. There's no, there's no uh, virus. There's no uh, contagion. There's no problem. There's no situation on earth that Father can keep us from shouting out. And the Bible says, and if we did fall silent, then the very rocks themselves would cry out to you. Because, Father, you are worthy of praise and honor. We give you praise today, Jesus. Amen. Amen. There, is this working now, Eric? Test one, two. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? All right. Praise God. Here, Betty Ann. Take that down with you. All right. Well, it's good to see your smiling faces this morning. And, man, are you a good-looking crew today, let me tell you. I'll tell you. Uh, it. Well, Barry's excited anyway, and I, and I heard Tom giving a bit of a hallelujah there earlier too, so we got a few excited people in the house. Praise the Lord. You know, I'm not going to spend any time today really doing any review except to say that uh, over the last couple uh, weeks we introduced or we started talking about the third big question, right? Uh, to whom am I called to do life? And this is all, this is the question about alignment in our life. Who have we aligned ourselves with? You know, like I say, we all need, all need to know whose we are. We need to know that we belong to God. We all need to know who we are. We need to know how we've been created, what our gifts, our talents, our abilities, so that we can find our purpose. But we need to know, uh, answer the question, to whom have I been called to live my life out, to walk, to journey together with? And this is a question most Christians never get to. We may know whose we are. We're confident that we belong to the Lord. And we may know even who we are, what my gifts, my talents, my purpose is. But we never actually ask, who am I to do life with? And if we can answer that third question, if we know how God's called us and we align to a body, this is one of the reasons why, you know, the Lone Ranger Christianity doesn't work. Because God's called us to be connected together to a body. And when we find relationship in community, then we grow and we cause others to grow. Amen? And so we need to be interconnected in the body of Christ. And then I talked about, though, when it comes to alignment, we need to be able to identify some relationships in our life. We need to know who our spiritual father is. We need somebody in our life who is helping guide us in our journey in Jesus Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul, in fact, put it so bluntly, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's as straightforward as you're ever going to get. And then he, he wrote to the church in Corinth and he said, even though you have 10,000 guardians, you have few fathers, I became your father through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he understood the power of having a spiritual father, a spiritual mother, somebody who's, who's there to help, help you and guide you and direct you so that you, know, you can avoid the pitfalls of life. And how many know that if you've got somebody in your life doing that for you, you can cut years off the journey? Amen? You can actually cut years off the journey. Then we also need 
we all need people beside us. We need brothers and sisters in the Lord. We need somebody that is there to help pick us up when we're down. We need somebody to dust us off, you know, put their arm around us, pray for us, encourage us, tell us it's going to be all right. We can do this. And who labor together with us to defeat the enemy in their life. Amen. And so I talked about that. And then uh, thirdly, we all need uh, spiritual sons. And we'll get to that in a few weeks. We need people that are walking along behind us, people that are following us, people that are drawing on us, people who are, uh, you know, who are needing us to be better. That's why we need them. We need people that need us to be better. And, uh, you know, parents, we, we want to improve ourselves. We never want to get to a certain plateau and stop. We always want to be improving so that our kids have something to draw upon. So that even as they move into adulthood, they still know that mom and dad is the best source of advice that I can find. And so we try to improve so that those are, that are walking with us, those who are sons and daughters in our lives, are able to draw on us and to gain something from our life. And the beautiful side of that is that when you have those people that are drawing on you, it causes you to be better. Amen? Causes you to be better. Now, I won't uh, review last week's message as we talked about you know, those walking beside us. But I want to talk about that again this morning. And then, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks, I'll talk about spiritual fathers. And then I'll talk about what it is as spiritual sons before we get into celebrating the birth of the greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the month of December. Amen? But um, I want to talk today about probably one of my favorite verses, John uh, chapter 13, verse 35. And it says, By this will all men, all women know that you are my disciples, right? If you have what? If you have what? Love one for another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, how many know that this current pandemic has stretched people? How many have been stretched? Let me see your hands. Have you been stretched? Of course you have. I mean, you've been stretched. It stretches everybody. Everybody's been stretched. And, uh, you know, it's um, also made us uh, think about a lot of things. It's made us think about the importance of family. It's made us think about the importance of church, community. You know, you never know how much you miss coming together and just being with God's people till you're not allowed to do it, Right? And I had so many people said, I just can't wait to even be able to come and just sit in the room. Even if I have to be distanced from everybody, I just want to be in the room because I miss getting together with God's people. And so, you know, it's, it's a, an, an amazing thing that how we discover how much we miss once it's not there. Um, it's made us, you know, uh, evaluate the role of community in our life, not just our church community, but our, our neighbors and how important they are. Uh, you know, I don't know how many of you go on Facebook. Did you see what Ted and Sharon uh, put up in their front yard? Uh, you know, Ted made this beautiful little mini library on his front porch, or out in his front yard, I should say. And, and he's got, you know, all nice and weather sealed. And you can come and you can get a book or leave a book. And uh, we prefer you sanitize it before you put it in. But, uh, you know, the, the beautiful thing is that communities are drawing together and finding ways to just be there for one another, even uh, in unique and creative ways that are actually uh, helping us as the body of Christ. We also realize how important 
community is. And, you know, uh, this past week, uh, I don't know if many of you are aware, but uh, Steve Woodcock went on to be with the Lord on Wednesday night. And uh, Steve's a delightful brother. And if some of you may be thinking, who's Steve? He's the guy that sat right back over there and usually had his vest on, nice long beard, and uh, looked like he could have done an episode of Duck Dynasty. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? But <laughs> is that a pretty good, accurate def- definition? And, uh, you know, Steve uh, and Sue are here virtually every week, just uh, loving the Lord together. But Steve had uh, cancer and he went to be with the Lord on Wednesday night. And uh, so, you know, just being able to be there and knowing that there's community around us reminds us of how important the body is. Amen? And being able to be there with Steve and talk with him and pray with him, it just reminded me of how important it is to have community in our life. Family, friends, uh, church family, we need that in our lives. It's also, uh, this pandemic has created an awful lot of stress. Stress for business owners. Someone say amen. Stress for frontline workers, stress for the unemployed, stress for teachers, stress for students, stress for parents, stress, stress, stress. Everybody's stressed out. And because people are stressed, you read in the paper or see it on the news every day, people who do some pretty ridiculous, silly things. Getting in fights with store clerks like it's their personal fault that they asked you to wear a mask in their store. They're just doing their best to follow the protocols that are out there. You know, uh, it's, it's not their fault. Don't take it out on the employee that's making, you know, $15 an hour because they're spraying your hands with sanitizer and asking you to wear a mask. Now, likewise, if you work in one of those stores, you know, uh, I, I feel bad for you. I really do, <laughs> you know. But uh, do your best. Do your best not to pick up the attitude of your customers. Someone say amen. <laughs> Because sometimes they're coming in and they're not in a particularly good mood. And you need help to not pick up the mood that they're bringing into the store. Amen? Is that right, Isaiah? (laughs) And so you need the Lord's help not to pick up what they're bringing in. And so we just need God to help us with all stuff. You know, as believers, we're not to be ruled by the stress. We're to be ruled by that verse that I just read at the beginning. We're to be ruled by love. And we're to have such love, especially for one another, that the whole world takes notice and knows there's something different about you. You know, we're coming into my favorite time of year, and increasingly, uh, as we move further and further down the road of secularization of culture, uh, you go into a store and they have happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. And the person at the cash says happy holidays. And, you know, and I see so many Christians expend an enormous amount of energy uh, trying to convince the person behind the counter that they are supposed to say Merry Christmas instead of happy holidays, when they're probably just saying whatever their employer told them to say. Hello? So, you know, or the controversy over the proverbial Starbucks cup every year, you know, uh, you know, Christmas is red. It shouldn't be green or it's white or why do you have this? I mean, come on, really? Instead, how about we try this for strategy this year? If you're at uh, Home Depot and somebody says happy holidays, say Merry Christmas back to them. Hello? And smile and be the best customer they had all day. Am I making any sense today? And when you go into Starbucks, you know, just bless them and thank them and don't worry about whether the cup is red, green, white, purple, blue, or indifferent. It doesn't matter, all right? It doesn't matter. 
What matters is the attitude that's on the inside of us. That's what matters. What do we carry on the inside of us? If we carry so much love, especially one for another in the body of Christ, then the Bible says the world will notice and they'll know that you're his disciples. It's what you carry in here that matters. Is this making sense to people? And so today I want to talk to you about how to love one another in this season, but in any season. How to love one another. How to love one another. Everybody say how. Say how, pastor. I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you how this morning. Uh, how to love one another. Okay, the first thing you got to do to love one another. You ready for this? You're writing and taking notes. Point number one is this. How do I love one another in the body of Christ? Is by having consideration for a weaker brother or sister. Right? Put that down. You know, there's a lot said about this in Scripture. Let me just give you a couple examples. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, it says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, Paul says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Interesting verse, isn't it? Paul spends quite a bit of time in his letters dealing with this particular issue of looking out for one another, about being considerate of one another. But it's not a unique theme to just Paul. Listen to this in Matthew 18 as we read what Jesus said. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was tossed in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Are you catching what Jesus was saying? is that it's, it's a despicable thing to cause a brother or sister to stumble. Now, someone said, well, yeah, but he says little ones. Does he really mean children or does he mean those who are simply immature? See, I think it means those that are immature and it covers children, obviously, because they're not mature yet. But it also, I think, covers those who are spiritually immature. And Jesus is telling us not to cause another to stumble, not to be the one that creates the offense. And he says, hey, there's a lot of offenses in life and they're sure to come, but don't be the one that creates it. Don't be the one that causes it. We have a responsibility as brothers and sisters to love one another enough to look out for one another, to care for one another. And Paul has another passage, 1 Corinthians, I should say, uh, 6.12. Listen to this. Everything he said is permissible for me. Everything. But not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And what does Paul mean by this? Well, if you read in context, he talks about a few things in these passages. He talks about food, he talks about Sabbath, and he talks about drink. Right? And I think the one that's easiest for us to relate to in our culture is drink, right? And uh, Paul says, it's permissible for me. And you certainly can't make a biblical case that you're not allowed to consume alcohol. It's tough to do. But listen to what Paul's saying. He said, it's permissible, but it's not necessarily beneficial. It's permissible. And he says, but I will not be mastered by anything. 
In other words, I will not allow, whether it's alcohol, whether it's food, and I have a lot of people say, yes, I've never touched a drink in my life, but they weigh 400 pounds. Pastor, did you really say that? Yes. And, you know, the reality is we shouldn't be mastered by anything. Drink, food, gossip, deceit. We shouldn't be mastered by anything. Am I making any sense today? We are supposed to live a disciplined life in Christ. And here's the thing. We, it's not being disciplined so we can get into heaven. That's purchased and done by Jesus Christ. So we're not earning our salvation here. We're practicing discipline so that we don't cause somebody else to miss out on Jesus Christ. It's about not being the one who causes somebody else to falter or stumble. That we live our lives in such a way that we don't cause somebody else to miss out on what we walk in and enjoy in Jesus Christ. This is what it means to love one another. Recognizing that, yes, I could do that, but if it means it's going to cause somebody else to stumble, then I won't do it. And Paul was pretty adamant about this. He spent a lot of time talking about meat. And it's hard for us to relate to because we don't have people in our community out sacrificing cows and, and to false gods. So it's a little harder for us to relate to his illustration. But Paul's point was that that happened in his culture. And, and then they would take that meat after it was sacrificed to one of the gods and they would sell it for a discount in the market because it had probably sat out in the sun or it had been partially baked or however they did it. And then Paul would, was saying that some people would go and would buy that meat that had been previously sacrificed and then they would eat it. But Paul said some Christians were saying you can't do that and, and it was a stumbling block for them if somebody had consumed that kind of meat because it had been used to worship an idol. And Paul said, we know that meat's meaningless. It doesn't matter. And Paul even makes an argument and he says, it doesn't matter if it's been used in that purpose or not. But he said, if it's going to cause another brother or sister to stumble, to have knowledge that I would eat that meat from the market that was sacrificed to an idol, he said, then I'd never eat meat again. If that's what it meant to keep another brother or sister from falling. Do you get what Paul's getting at here this morning? So if we really love one another, we're going to be considerate of one another. The power is in the hands of the believer. It should not be in the things that we participate in, whether it's food or whether it's drink or whether it's conversation. All the things that we participate in, which can be good or bad, they should never master us. Are you hearing me today? They should never master us, and they should never be used through us to cause another to stumble. I found this quote uh, a couple years ago, and it said this. It said, unlawful things, in other words, things that are sin, unlawful things ruin thousands. Lawful things, unlawfully used, ruin ten thousands. Do you get that? Lawful things, outright sin, lying, deceit, theft, whatever, it ruins thousands of lives. But he says lawful things, maybe food, drink, or, or, or whatever. Uh, he said lawful things used unlawfully, used in the proper, improper way, ruin tens of thousands. Wow. We're not to be ruled by the law, that's true, but we're not to allow the liberties that we have to cause others to stumble either. Our use or non-use of lawful things is to be regulated by our regard, I should say, for what will edify. Matthew Henry, the famous commentator, he said this. He said, those who intentionally engage in everything not plainfully sinful in itself will often run into what is evil by accident. 
So in other words, those who intentionally engage in anything that's not necessarily sinful in itself will often run into evil by accident. So if we're intentionally getting involved in eating too much or drinking or sex outside of marriage or any of these different things, and we go after that thing, we cause others to stumble and we eventually find ourselves in evil, even though that wasn't our goal in the first place, right? The practical application of what Paul was getting at was, you know, about everything being permissible, but not everything being beneficial is found in verse 24, chapter 10. And he says this, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. It's about others. The key is found in seeking what is good for others, not for ourselves. Not for ourselves. Understand what I'm saying today? Jack Frost, uh, one of the great writers, I think, of our time, and about, especially about relationships and things like that, someone asked him what the difference once between love and lust was. What's the difference, they said, Jack, between love and between lust? And he says, very simple. He said, love is meeting somebody else's needs at your expense. He said, lust is meeting your need at somebody else's expense. That's pretty good. Love is meeting somebody else's need at your expense. But lust is meeting your need at somebody else's expense. Think about that for a moment. You see, we need to be in all ways responsible for ourselves so that we don't cause other people to stumble or falter. That is the first way that we love one another. The second way we love one another is by releasing one another from expectations. Everybody say expectations. Expectations. You know, on the one hand, we have the negative impact on the kingdom when believers allow their freedoms to be a stumbling block for those who are weaker. But then on the other hand, we have people who in their religious spirit or in their weakness or whatever, heap all these expectations on other people and burden them with the weight of expectation. That's not love either. It's not. Faith can be defined as having an expectation on God. And that kind of expectation is good. But expectations that's placed on other people, when you place it on other people, all you're doing is opening up a door to disappointment that can often leave that other person in a very, very tightly defined place, defined by you and what you think they should or should not be doing. And it's one of the worst forces in the body of Christ. Most of the people that you're offended with and you're disappointed in is because they didn't meet up to your standards. And you end up uh, putting on them an expectation that, that even God didn't have. Even God had more grace than you. And God wants to set the body free of those expectations. Chuck Swindle had this to say about the power or the impact of those expectations. He said, we need to take an honest look at this painful thorn that blurs our vision and conceives our disappointments. Expectations. We erect mental images which are either unrealistic, unfair, or biased. And those phantom images become our inner focus, rigidly and traditionally maintained, leaving no room for flexibility on the part of the other person, allowing no place for circumstantial change or surprise. We set in mental concrete the way things must go. And when they don't, we either tumble or grumble or both. The result is tragic. 
As our radius of toleration is reduced, our willingness to accept others' imperfections or less than ideal circumstances is short-circuited. And worst of all, the delightful spontaneity of a friendship is strained. The chain of obligation, I like this quote, built with the links of expectation, binds us in the dungeon of disappointment. Isn't that great? The chain of obligation built with the links of expectation binds us in the dungeon of disappointment. We need to give one another stretching space, the room to respond and react in a variety of ways, even as our infinite creator molded a variety of personalities. This will require a ritual burning of our list of expectations. For some of us, it could make quite a bonfire. It will also mean we stop anticipating the ideal and start living with the real, which is always checkered with failure, imperfections, and even wrong. What Chuck's trying to get across to us is that we need to, you know, release one another from all those expectations and have expectations on God and some expectations on yourself, but release everybody else. Release everybody else. And religious tradition has a lot to do with this. You know, I realize our church doesn't struggle with a lot of religious tradition. It's not one of our bigger hangups. And people who are very religiously traditional sometimes find this place a little difficult to handle. And I understand that. And it's not because I myself don't have some traditional expectations and things that I like or prefer, but I tend to not put those on the next generation. I've been able to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to weight them down with what my expectations should be. And so, you know what? I found a beautiful thing happening. As I began to lift those expectations off the next generation, and they began to step out and, and into areas of music, for example, which is one of the most controversial in the body of Christ, and they began to find their own expression in their own generation, I began to find I started liking it as well. It's a miracle. You know? I know what I preferred, but now I find actually, you know, I, if I'm going to put it on, it's, I'm actually going to turn on worship. I'd listen to Elevation Worship, which we did a whole Elevation set this morning. That was, that was awesome, you know. Uh, the whole album, uh, you know, uh, Graves into Gardens is fantastic. And I found myself listening to it. Now, you know, it wouldn't have been my preference, my style of music, but what I find is that when I, I, I take my expectations of what church music should be and I lift it off of another generation so that they can find their voice, I end up actually enjoying it. Amazing how that happens, isn't it? And when we start doing that, if we stop putting all these expectations on everybody else about how they should or shouldn't do things, it liberates us even to enjoy the very thing that maybe didn't meet our expectation. And as we love one another enough to lift all those religious notions off of each other, and be honest enough to admit that most of our religious expectations are only our own personal experiences and preferences. That's all they are. There's nowhere in Scripture that Paul, the apostle, defined what church music should sound like. All he said was hymns, songs, and spiritual songs. That's as close as he ever came to defining what it's going to sound like. He didn't say no drums, no guitars, blah, 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 blah. He didn't say any of it. The Bible talks about harps and cymbals. I mean, if you want to get technical in a trumpet every once in a while. Uh, but it doesn't say too much else about it. It doesn't. 
What it does say is make a joyful what? And some of you are saying, well, praise the Lord, pastor, because that music this morning sure fit that scripture. Because you're more into, you know, maybe the great hymns of the faith or whatever. And I understand that. Nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is if we would lift that off, you know, we sit back and we complain because another generation is not going after Christ, but then we set roadblocks up of expectation and wonder why they can't get over them. Are you hearing me this morning? So if we want to walk in love, don't cause another brother or sister to stumble and don't create a whole list of expectations that others have to live up to. Does that sound good so far? Third way that we show love to one another is simple. Third way. Oh, sorry. Before I do that, actually, can I read my favorite author, C.S. Lewis, and what he had to say about expectations? I, I forgot I had this quote in here, and uh, I just got to read it because it's one of my favorites. And, uh, and, and listen to what he had to say about it. It's fantastic. He said, uh, did we pretend to have our feelings hurt when envy, ungratified vanity, or thwarted self-will was the real problem? Such tactics often succeed. The other parties give in. They give in not because they don't know what's really wrong with us, but because they have long known, owned too well, that the sleeping dog cannot be aroused or the skeleton brought out of its cupboard only at the cost of imperiling their whole relationship with us. They know our problem needs surgery, which they know we will never face. And so we win by cheating. But the unfairness is very deeply felt. Indeed, what is commonly called being easily hurt, because people didn't meet your expectations, is the most powerful engine of domestic tyranny. Sometimes a lifelong tyranny. Now get this, he says, how we should deal with it in others, I am not sure. But we should be merciless to its first appearances in ourselves. Ouch. So when you see somebody who's always getting offended, always getting offended, I don't know how to fix that problem for them. Honestly, I don't. It's one of our greatest challenges as a pastor is dealing with everybody's offenses. I don't know how to fix it in other people. But I do know this. I'll make sure it doesn't happen to me. I'm not going to walk around in a spirit of offense. And guess what? If you're called to the ministry and you're easily offended, cancel your plans right now. It's not a good career choice for you. Mm-mm. You should pick something else, like gardening or something like that. And uh, because the plants don't take talk back, they don't typically have an attitude, and if they're suffering, it's the weather's fault or it's a bug's fault or whatever. And, 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 and you know what? But I'm telling you, if, if you suffer from being easily offended, don't even think about going to the ministry. It ain't going to work well for you. So church, you see what I'm saying? It's time for us to throw off all those expectations of one another and, and being so easily hurt and offended and all the rest of it because people didn't meet up to our expectations. And instead of expectations, substitute grace. Give people grace. And that leads me to my third way to love one another. I mean, first of all, we, uh, we don't cause them to stumble. Secondly, we stop having these unrealistic expectations and getting offended. And the third thing we do is we forgive. We learn the power of forgiveness. I want to read very quickly just a few verses for you here this morning. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this. He said, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother and then 
come offer your gift. Matthew 6, 12 to 15 says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Thinks he's being generous. Jesus said, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Wow. Matthew 11. Uh, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so your Father in heaven may also forgive your sins. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Luke 6, verse 37, do not judge, or you will not be, uh, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. John 20, verse 23, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. And now that verse in there in particular is talking about sins against you, you know, so don't think it means you can go around and, you know, just because you don't forgive somebody about something they did to somebody else, that they're still, doesn't work that way, all right? Uh, Colossians 3, 13, bear with each other, forgive whatever grievances you might have against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Wow. There are so many verses that talk about forgiveness. I could read them and stand here and probably do so for a good half hour. But what are we to glean from all of these passages today? First of all, no matter what we have to give uh, to forgive, it's doable because the Lord has forgiven us. Everybody say it's doable. If you think about the magnitude to which the Lord has forgiven you, then you can forgive one another. Secondly, our forgiveness is conditional. Our forgiveness is conditional upon our willingness to forgive others. And it's not that Jesus isn't bigger than your ability to forgive other people. It's that he's basically explaining to you that when you refuse to forgive someone else, you yourself are putting conditions on your own forgiveness. It's not that God's not bigger than your attitude. It's that you're basically asking him not to forgive you. You even, every time you say the Lord's Prayer, that's what you're saying. You're saying, forgive me my sins as I forgive others. You're putting a condition in your request for forgiveness to God. And you're saying, you know, only forgive me, Father, as I forgive others. That is a magnitudely powerful, that's like a, I don't know, 6.8 in the Richter scale prayer right there, at least. That's, that's, a, that's a potent prayer when you pray that. Third thing you learn when Jesus spoke to Peter, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? No, 70 times seven. In other words, there is no limit to how often we should forgive. Now, let me have a small caveat here. Forgiveness is not the same thing as forgetfulness. God's able to do both, but for us, it's probably not wise to do both. Let me explain. Someone comes and they borrow $10 from you and you forgive the debt, uh, because they don't pay back, that's fine. But if next week they come and ask to borrow 100, should you give it to them? Should you? No. It's called wisdom. You know what I'm saying? Now, if you have $100 laying around and you just want to bless them, you go right ahead. But don't be disappointed when the money doesn't come back because it didn't come back last time either. Right? And so we can forgive somebody. That debt means we don't hold it against them. But if they come and ask for another $100, you're going to have to probably say, you know what? 
uh, let's sit and talk about your inability to pay your debts back, right? And have an honest conversation with them about their, their finances. And so we have to be able to distinguish, uh, you know, that, that forgiveness is one thing, but we also need to practice uh, wisdom. And so it's not about, you know, just forgetting that the person has an inability to pay money back. And this is true with so many things, relationships and all kinds of things. If a person is, is, is constantly wounding you in relationship, you can forgive them, but they're probably not the person you should keep as your best friend. You might have to start looking for better relationships. You hear me? There is such a thing as boundaries in your life, and those boundaries are based on experience. And so we need to learn the power of forgiveness, yes. And so I have lots of people that, that you know, uh, even, even in family, that, that forgiveness abounds is there. But I have certain boundaries still in my life for my home, for our family, because their protection and their, our household peace is more important than that relationship because it's abusive. And so we need to understand the difference. And I can't get into all that detail this morning, but let me just wrap up uh, this morning. Final thing we can do if we're going to build, uh, be able to love one another in the body of Christ is we need to believe the best in each other. Believe the best. Believe the best. Stories told that, you know, two men went to church. One guy went to church and, and he actually counted the pastor making a mistake five times when he was preaching. He saw two young people talking over on the side, not paying any attention to the service. He uh, was listening to the music and it was, it was too loud. And then he, he noticed that when the pastor asked and took up the offering that a person beside him that he knows right well is a wealthy businessman, didn't even put anything in the offering. And he walked out and he said, I'm not going back to that church. There's nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. Another guy went to church and he saw, uh, you know, an incredible rendition of, of amazing grace that he just never heard before. And he said, man, that was really good. And he saw young people involved in the worship. And he said, man, that's just fantastic to see another generation involved. And he heard the pastor's message that day and he said, that really was excellent. It encouraged me, it blessed me, it built me up. And he said, man, I can't wait to get back next week. And the thing is that both men went to the same service at the same church. And you see, when you go into the house of the Lord and you're expecting the best from one another and you've lift off that spirit of expectation on people and all the rest of it, but you just want the best for one another. And uh, then what happens is God has the room to do good things in your life. So, how do we always desire the best for one another? How do we always anticipate and project the best to one another? Well, we be considered of one another. And the weaknesses, as I said, we stop placing the expectations, but we also, we also believe in one another. One of my favorite movies is uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, the one with Jim Caviezel, where he, the guy that played Jesus in the, you know, the, uh, the Mel Gibson movie, but he also plays in this movie in The Count of Monte Cristo. And if you don't know the movie, there's one scene where the old priest in prison, and they've been digging out and trying to dig out of prison for forever. And, uh, and finally, there's a cave-in while they're digging. Just as they're about to finish, there's a cave-in, and the old priest is mortally wounded. And he's holding the old priest in his hands, and he, the old priest tells him that, that, you know, about the treasure that he had been put in prison for, he, that he said he didn't know where it was. He said, I lied. He said, uh, under a stone in my uh, room, you'll find the map. And he goes, really? And he goes, and that treasure's there. When you escape, 
He said, go find it. He said, but never, ever, ever use it for revenge. Only use it for good. And then he said, never use it for revenge. Only use it for good. And he goes, God wants you to use it for good. And Jim Caviezel looks at him and he says, I don't believe in God. And the priest looks at him and says, doesn't matter. He believes in you. He believes in you. And let me tell you here this morning, the most important thing in life, we tend to think it's the most important thing is whether a person believes in God or not. The most important thing in their life is that they get a revelation that he believes in them. It's God's belief in us that is probably one of the most important things in our lives. And I've come to the revelation years ago. People don't want to be expected of as much as they want to be believed in. They want to be believed in. Jesus believed in his disciples. Jesus believed, uh, believes in you and I. And he's entrusted the spread of Christianity in this community to us. To the faith, the spread of the faith to us. Because he believes in us. Let me just close this morning. What's the difference between the way the world loves and the way the world operates and the way the church is supposed to operate? Well, here are some examples and then we'll close with these. The world kicks you when you're down. The church helps you up when you're down. The world exploits your weakness. The church covers your weakness. The church buries you in expect I mean the world buries you in expectations. The church places their expectations on Christ. The world places limits and conditions on forgiveness. The church forgives as Christ has forgiven us. The world lives in a, world, a life of offense, but the church releases our offenses to the Lord. The world expects you to fall and to fail. The church believes in you as Christ does. Amen? And when we have that kind of contrast, then they'll know that you're Christians because this is how you live. Let's stand together this morning. Father, we just thank you today for your incredible love and mercy that you've extended to each and every one of us. And Father, help us today to, Lord, love one another as you taught us in Scripture. To, Lord, not cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. To stop placing expectations and loading people up with a weight of expectation. Father, help us to, to, Lord, free people from that by forgiving them. Lord, help us do these things and we will be the people that the world looks at and says, I know that's a disciple of Christ because that's how they live. Father, we thank you for your grace today. We thank you for your love for us. Help us to be that kind of people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, everybody. Pastor Kevin Dowling here from Desert Stream. Just giving a shout out to you and saying thanks for joining us this week. We trust that you receive something out of what was shared today, and we hope that it spoke to you and that it encouraged you in this season that we find ourselves in. You know, you could do us a big favor if you would just uh, share, uh, like, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Let people know that there's a place that you found that you're getting an encouragement and hope each and every week. We hope you plan to check in with us next week, be a part of our expression again, and help spread the word that God is in control in the midst of this season. We love you. 